Welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today, I am excited to welcome my next guest, a fiber and drawing artist working with pop culture imagery. Please welcome Sasha Baskin. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for also being bespectacled uh, for this uh, non-visual medium. <laughs> um, so, you know, as we dive into um, and before we get into like the main topic of this this conversation, uh, I, I want to give you the space to like introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background, early experiences that kind of shaped who you are today as a creative, as a person. However, you really want to answer that question. The floor is yours. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a tough and complicated question, and I'm sure lots of folks have lots of really windy windy roads here. Um, I grew up in uh, Connecticut in the Northeast U.S. Um, I uh, went to undergrad at MICA here in Baltimore. I lived here for a little while. Um, I've lived all over this crazy little city. I love it so much. Um, I've done art jobs here. I've waitressed here. I've done service industry stuff here. I moved out of the city uh, to go to grad school uh, where I went to Virginia Commonwealth University and I studied craft and material studies. Um, and after that, I moved down to Tennessee for a year where I lived uh, in Dollywood. I lived in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is adjacent to the Dolly Parton's uh, amusement park. Um, lived right on the strip for 11 months at Aramont School of Arts and Crafts as an artist in residence there. Uh, moved back up to Baltimore uh, afterwards because the city just really couldn't uh, keep me away. And I've been here ever since. Uh, I teach at MICA, at Johns Hopkins, um, and most recently at Stevenson University up at Owings Mills. Um, I teach uh, drawing, I teach fibers, um, really anything they'll let me, <laughs> let me teach. I love teaching. Um, I think the uh, the big thing that kind of got me into into art and into making is a real real love of portraiture. Mm -hmm. When um, when I was seventeen eighteen, um, I had jaw surgery and I had a benign tumor removed from my face, and it changed the whole structure of my face um, and really sent me on this fascinating research path of what a likeness means and what it means to make something that looks like someone else and what it means when that shifts. Yeah. Um, and that became really fundamental to my practice and to this love of portraiture. I worked as a, a commission portrait artist for a number of years. Um, and that's really been the driving force in my creative practice um, ever since it always kind of comes back, back to portraiture for me. Thank you. And we, we're definitely going to kind of delve a little further into some of this. You know how this goes. Why am I even saying it? <laughs> so in, in thinking about it, um, I, I think doing this podcast has been very, um, I think, informational for, for me outside of like learning about all the great folks that I've talked to on here, but also you know, kind of getting a sense of maybe stuff that I've forgotten about myself that kind of gives me context for why I might approach this podcast the way that I do or approach conversations the way that I do. And I find that some of those um, sort of experiences are like forever ago, like I'm 38, right? And it's like, yeah, you know, when I was five, I did this. I'm like, oh man, that's, that's something I uncover. I wasn't expecting that. You know, did you have a, an early experience that like really pops in your head that says, yeah, you know, I was really into, you know, doing this, drawing in this area. Because I was definitely a drawing person when I was a kid. I was definitely one of those, 
I'm going to finish this test so I can draw X-Men for like the next 20 minutes or try to do a portrait of myself and always fail at it. So, so tell me about that. Oh, yeah, I definitely I was always a really um, obsessive and detailed kid. Um, my parents loved to remind me I was a real little uh, Sculpey uh, clay kid. And I was obsessed with making the smallest and tiniest Sculpey creations I could make that like my mom had to bake in the toaster oven um because it like teeny teeny tiny and now when I look at a pile of bobbin lace and the incredible intricacy of that process I'm like ah yeah those seeds they were just right there um they're just I've always just been as tiny and as detailed as I could possibly get it to be is really where where I want to live yeah like I don't, I don't know. Like I, I was thinking about this question. This this is not even one that I sent you, but it makes me think about like size and scale and all of that stuff when it relates to someone's like work. Like I remember, you know, I have a the, the most recent tattoo I got. I got from a person I interviewed, which mm-hmm. says a lot. I'm I'm deep in this, and uh, we, we were talking about like good tattoos that are, are are small because of all of the detail and all of that, and some of the bigger tattoos. It's like hmm. There's some questionable art that goes on. That was part of the crux of the conversation. So it made me very interested in like size and, and scale. So in looking at that sort of really detailed, intricate work, do you do you have any like trait that comes to mind why you were like really into that small, that sort of smaller work? Well, I don't know. I think that's just always been my that's always been my impulse. I have just always wanted things as um as small and as absurd as possible. Um <laughs> I, you know, in undergrad, it was, you know, can I, can I weave with the tiniest of silk? Can I draw with the finest point pencil? I would sit there with an exacto knife, just carving and carving, trying to get the finest, absolute finest point. I think it's one of the reasons I've never really liked painting. I've always like, I want a single hair paintbrush. I just, every time a painting teacher in my art education would come at me and be like, you need to use a bigger brush, use different sizes of brush this i don't that does not compute for me i don't understand what you're asking of me that's really funny (laughs) so you know i I see that you touched on earlier you know education is now a big part of what the day-to-day looks like uh being an educator uh you know you have the classical drawing training um traditional weaving and lace making how did that come about Um, So yeah, the classical drawing was while I was an undergrad at MICA. I was like, I'm, you know, same with that um, obsessively tiny. I'm pretty stubborn. I came in and went, I want to learn this thing and I want to learn it backwards and forwards and upside down and underwater. Um, And I really, really wanted to learn how to draw. And I spent four years really, really learning how to draw. I had some really excellent teachers, did some really like atelier style, you know, drill training. Um, and loved loved every second of it. Um, and it was in my uh, last year of undergrad that I really started pushing into weaving, mostly out of, again, that stubbornness. I couldn't get anybody to pay attention to drawings. It was such a hard time to be drawing. And people were really kind of um, bored with the concept of drawing and wanted there to be something beyond that. And I was like, well, what? how can I use another medium to draw? Mm. And it kind of pulled me. I took a weaving class, fell in love with it. Uh, pretty linear, uh, linear path there. Um, and it really let me get into that incredibly detailed 
really slow. I like a nice slow burn of an art process. I like to set all the stuff up before you can even dive into it. Um, and then you're just kind of executing. I love that feeling. Um, and uh, then I kind of realized that I had this real pull towards fiber work. I had always been a knitter. I had always been in this universe. Um, and going into grad school, I really didn't know where I was going to fit if I was going to go to a painting and drawing program, because that's technically what my background was in, or if because I had been building this um, fiber and weaving portfolio, um, if that's where that was going to go. Um, and I wound up in a weaving program in a textiles program. Um, and like all grad programs, they're like, they try and tell you to do the absolute opposite of the thing that you came in doing. Um, and again, very stubborn. Mm -hmm. I was like, I really don't want to stop weaving, but what's still weaving, but not weaving lace is not weaving. Mm -hmm. I dipped my toe into a little bit of lace, taught myself a lot of bobbin lace and, um, fillet lace, which is weaving on a fishing net. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it wasn't really until I went to my residency in, um, Gatlinburg in Tennessee that I was on top of a mountain in a tourist town uh, in the middle of winter, there's nothing to do and a lot of time to make a lot of lace. Um, and I really dove into this process. It's been kind of, I've picked it up and put it down a number of times. Um, and I put it back down when I left that residency and then really rediscovered it with a with a passion um, in the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, I had been doing a lot of weaving on the TC2, the digital loom at MICA. Mm -hmm. um, and working with that program. And then um, in, like, I had just started a new piece. I was sampling. I was so excited. And March 2020 happened. And that beautiful robotic loom got closed Oops. like everything else. Right. And bobbin lace was something I could do on my coffee table and something I can do underneath a Zoom meeting. Um, I have it laid out on my desk right now. And you don't even know um, below this uh, beautiful window. <laughs> um and yeah it just really snowballed from there thank you wow um so in, in terms of of what the the process what your process looks like because it's it's drawing it's using the the, the fiber component of it so Tell me about like what that what, describe what that process is because i I don't know what bobbin lays i'm I'm trying to figure it out myself but if you could include this, um, any, so I recently been diving into this book about, um, creative confidence mm -hmm. and, and one is an exercise that came up in it. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, like the, um, it's called the 30 circles. Oh no, I don't think so. So in essence, to try to like get the creative juices flowing, um, is, it's, it's a workshop activity where everyone in this class, for sake of argument, gets a sheet that has 30 circles on it. And in the span of three minutes, you have to draw as many things in those circles. Like you might make a basketball out of the circle, a cat's face, something like that. And it's like a brainstorming, but in a creative brainstorming because you're drawing. Right. And they might group people up of how many of you had a basketball? All of you in this corner. How many of you had a rabbit head? All of you in this corner. So do you have any sort of like exercises or things to kind of get the, the juices flowing? Um, I know that, you know, some folks do scales. Like I try to get my voice right before I just get on. You just hear on oh, podcast. You want to hear that, you know? So I got to prep to at least start thinking about what I'm doing. So 
to bring everything back, um, could you describe your process in any sort of, um, you know, introductory getting yourself warmed up to be in this sort of creative mindset? My creative process, I wish I could say I was a sampler. I wish I could say um, I, you know, approach things really methodically. I don't. I dive in. I am a go big or go home kind of maker. It has frustrated um, mentors and residencies and friends of mine for years because I'll dive into something and then not like it and just stubbornly plow my way through. I'm like, you could have done a smaller version of this, tested it out, tried some little things. And I was like, nah, I, because the sample isn't the thing. The thing is the thing. And it doesn't, it doesn't work for me if it's not the thing. It doesn't answer all the questions that I had. Um, I've, I've never really been a a sketcher. I'm a list maker, if I'm anything. Um, and I'm a, um, outline maker. Um, I have never really maintained a strong sketchbook practice, but I have maintained a very strong bullet journal practice. I'm a much more verbal, verbal sketcher than I am a visual one. That that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, in, and it's going to be a question I have a little bit later that has to do with like sketchbooks and things of that nature. At least that's the thinking that's behind it. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's it's worthy of like checking into how someone goes about their work. Like um, I remember this interview I did with um, S.P. Frazier and she she described what she does is drawing. But it's like all I see is textiles here. She's like, well, I draw with that. And I was like this is this is amazing and i never thought about it that way especially being a person who you know if you know things went a certain way when i was younger this podcast wouldn't exist i would be drawing i would just be like all right and here's the next picture of myself that's going to be in this self-absorbed comic book that i'm working on (laughs) yeah everything's a line everything's just a different kind of line i teach drawing and i always baffles me when students are ask me if they can do a certain kind of thing in my class. I'm like, everything is a drawing. Can you justify it as a drawing? It's a drawing. Stop asking this question. I like that. I like that way of, I like that way of thinking. Um, Cause you know, I, I still kind of struggle with this idea and I've had people who do art criticism or journalism, all of that different stuff. I'm like, I don't really fit in this scene. It's like, you're an artist, keep it moving. You know, literally is that, do you think you're an artist? I was like, nah, and I think, you know, I remember this one conversation I had with Harag Vartanian and he was just like, you got to own it, you got to own the thing. And so I would imagine the same thing that you're kind of speaking with in your, your, your students, like, are you drawing? Is, is this a drawing? Yes. <laughs> I used to get into this all the time when I was, um, because my work kind of straddles the craft and the fine art realms. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this conversation quite a lot with my, um, kind of colleagues in the craft universe where there's this, there's this design, there's this feeling that like craft artists aren't invited into the fine art conversation. And I'm like, it's, I always use this metaphor of, it's like, we're all going to a party and we're like, okay, everybody, we're going to the party. And then like one friend is like, well, do you, do you want me at, at the party? And I'm like, yeah, man, we're all going to the party. And I'm like, well, but are, are you sure? Are you sure I can go to the party? I'm like, well, now you're making it weird. So like now. Maybe you shouldn't go. <laughs> we, we're all just going. Not a, No one else got an engraved invitation. Just go to the party. And like, I feel like we, we do that to ourselves a lot in kind of niche mediums where, you know, if I waited all day for the bobbin lace exhibition, I mean, there was one this year, it was beautiful, Um, but there's been one. So I would have been waiting 
how many years of my career, you got to just show up to the party. Right. And describe real quick um, what Bob and Lisa is for those who, like myself, who don't understand what that means. Um, it's it's lace. It's really, really uh, tiny and detailed kinds of interlocking threads that are made. Bob and Lace is made on a pillow. Mm-hmm. Um, there's usually a pattern, a paper pattern underneath and a bunch of little straight pins. Gotcha. Uh, it's had a real moment on TikTok recently. There's a lot of ASMR videos of Bob and Lace. Um, and you have hundreds of bobbins that hang off of this pillow and you throw them and you move them and they make a lovely little jingly noise. That's what, that's them below me. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of, there are as many different kinds of lace as there are people making it. Um, one of the things I really love about lace is that it's been kind of independently invented all over the world um, and traded and passed through culture to culture and people to people and different cultures have developed their own specific kind of um, styles and types of lace that make the most sense for what they do. Um, And uh, what I I love about it is that it's beautiful and it's useless that there's Historically, the development of lace is like such a desire to make something beautiful and to make something intricate. There was no, you know, hurry up and finish the lace like the children are hungry. Like it's not going to solve anybody's problem. It's this like development of desire for ornamentation and beauty that I think is a really beautiful part of of the history of lace. I mean, I'm ready for this lace podcast. I'm, I'm ready for you to go just big lace. I'm ready for it. Um, <laughs> so, so t- t- could you share, cause I, in, in reading over some of the, some of the background, I, I see like reality shows pop up. I see the bachelor, I see Greek mythology. So, so tell me about your relationship in those areas and some of the inspirations like in your, for your work. Uh, yeah. So pop culture and reality TV is kind of the source of all of my work. Um, I pull almost all of the images that I work from, from screenshots from episodes of The Bachelor. Um, this work started a couple of years ago when I was watching The Bachelor and just truly could not shut up about it. Um, I think we will study this show the way we study the Stanford prison experiments. I think it is psychological torture. Um, I think it is just a fascinating microcosm of of society. It's hyper-reality. It's simulation simulacrum. I could go on forever, um, which I did many times. Uh, and a very sweet friend of mine tapped me on the shoulder one night and went, you either need to make work about this or you need to shut up about it. Like, we can't do this <laughs> anymore. Uh, and he was right. And I started doing that. Um, and where I really fell into it was that I was watching all these shows and they were capturing all of these figures in these like beautiful Renaissance style poses and lighting and moments. And I was like, this is a Raphael tapestry. Like this is a Raphael tapestry on my screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I took a million screenshots. I have hundreds of screenshots on my desktop of my laptop makes me look like a crazy bachelor serial killer um (laughs) and seriously anytime I have to screen share my lap my laptop in my classroom my students are like why are there so many photos of that random blonde lady crying I'm like let me tell you 
very important for my research. Um, but uh, it, I started to find these figures as as modern goddesses. They just like in Greek mythology, they tell us, you know, what to wear, how to act, the social expectations of our age um, and of our time. They're is a fascinating formula in reality television that attempts to simplify and explain large unanswerable questions, which is where most mythologies come from. You know, when the Greeks didn't understand why the sun rose and fell, they were like, ah, a guy in a chariot carries it. That answers a big, scary question for us, right? So in a really modern age, when human connection is really hard and really scary and really weird, the concept of a reality dating TV show where there is a formula mm-hmm. answers an, an an unanswerable question of how do we fall in love? Yeah. And, there, you know, just like Apollo was not really the answer. I hope that, you know, one man dating 30 women uh, who he narrows down to one is not the answer, but it's, it's one of the answers. Well, there has been one really successful true. love story. So... <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I I like that that sort of sense of thinking around. I think in this sort of where we're at, we're kind of in this age where we're encountering that we're encountering these sort of mysteries. How do we get to know people, especially over the last couple of years, pandemic and all of that stuff related? It's gotten weirder. It's gotten goofier. It's gotten more AI oriented, and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people just think that that's normal, and then it and, and it goes to it kind of connects to one of the questions I have. I usually ask a question about the digital to analog loop, but it's that as well. So mm-hmm. to start acting how one would act, netiquette, whatever, how people behave online. I'm gonna ghost you in real life. It's just an episode of Black Mirror. It is yeah. so insane, and you know I I encounter it even from from this. Like, and it's not just. You know, people like just from a social standpoint, you even see like businesses, professionals that is supposed to have a certain decorum, a certain structure. These are the rules that we're abiding by. You do an interview, you're expecting a callback. No, you're getting professionally ghosted. And it's it's that. And we let this sort of scripted faux reality kind of like permeate and is how we behave in real life. And I know that that's going to have an impact and an effect on people for a while. So Definitely. We're on the same page. <laughs> Suffice to say. <laughs> it's I'm I, you know, I read um Baudrillard uh and the Borges Fable, and just like my life was never the same. This concept of China of a digital reality that is more real than our reality is such a fascinating concept. Um, I don't know if you've seen the um the four stages of simulacrum as they relate to like pumpkin spice lattes. It's like a please <laughs> around. Um, there's a couple different versions of it. I'll probably butcher it now that I'm not actively looking at it, but it's this concept of um the stages of simulation that there's the thing, the thing is no longer the thing. The thing is the thing again, and then the thing becomes a whole new concept. Um, so it's these four stages and you can think about it as like a pumpkin is a pumpkin, right? Like we know what a pumpkin is. We look at it. We know what pumpkin is. Um, then there's like an image of a pumpkin, right? I could paint you a photo, paint you an image of a pumpkin, take a photo of a pumpkin. That's not a pumpkin you could eat, but you understand that that is a representation of a pumpkin, right? Um, 
And you can step it up to like a pumpkin pie would probably be on the same frame of like an image of a pumpkin. It's still not the pumpkin, but it's related to the pumpkin. You understand how you got there. Next step. So that's like the thing. And then the image of the thing, the concept of the thing. And then the next step would be the pumpkin spice latte, which no longer has any relationship to, to the pumpkin. It is completely separate still somehow related to the pumpkin, but it has become its own new simulation of what a pumpkin means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you go to your grocery store and you get Coffee Mate pumpkin spice coffee creamer. And that is a simulation of a pumpkin spice latte. So we've got a simulation of the simulation Mm. and layers of, of reality that we just accept as still somehow related to the pumpkin. And... That, thank you. That's yeah, now I'm gonna have to dive into. You're gonna have me go on a wormhole, but it, it it definitely gives me this vibe because I've gotten really interested in sort of like cultural preservation and like how you know it, it's it's it plays there. It's just like oh no, that's not that's not black or that's not this, and it's like but it is. People are telling you that this is what this is, and as you were describing the the pumpkin spice scenario there, I immediately started thinking of artificial flavoring and candy mm-hmm. like banana candy watermelon candy doesn't taste anything near any know. version it doesn't taste like pumpkin pop I mean, it doesn't taste like banana the banana nut bread it doesn't taste like a banana smoothie a banana doesn't have any problem with flavor but when you like have had bananas and you're like oh let me try this banana lifesaver this is terrible this is hey. this is this is gunk <laughs> But we still call it banana, and it is still somehow related to banana. So that's pop culture. That's reality TV. The Bachelor is not love, but we call it love. And mm-hmm. there are people on our screen saying the word love. It's yep. a simulation of a simulation. When they they talk through the steps of um, there are stages in The Bachelor, and you have to follow them. You can you are falling for someone. You are falling in love with someone, and then you are in love with someone, and they are stages you can't jump them um so what are those screens what are those simulations what it what is the difference define the difference between falling in love and in love how do you know when you've crossed that that line that whole thing would make me go completely badass because i am not a rule follower <laughs> so it's just like yeah you know what you got three months in this stage it's it's again the black mirror thing when i think uh i think it was the uh, hang the dj that episode oh. and i was just like oh right yeah they have to do this date and then they click and then they just move to the next stage or go back to the pool it's like this is not society this is not how this is supposed to work so in, in making in making those connections, because I, as I want to move to the next thing, because I will just keep asking you questions. We can talk about pop culture. Um, see, this is why I had that friend stop me, is because I would take over parties. Look, I do a I do a movie podcast that I will probably invite you to um, anytime. So, so, as far as making those connections, like how did that that come about? Like you know, just drawing that connection in your head, and then ultimately, be, you know, being presented within your work. I've always been really interested in the relationship of textiles traditions and digital traditions. Like the analog pixel has always been really interesting to me. And the origin of weaving um, is the origin of computers. So the original computer was based on the um, Jacquard loom um, and like the punch cards that used to 
um, operate a computer are based on the Jacquard loom. Um, We call a computer bug a computer bug because a moth got stuck in a loom once. Um, I know, right? Yeah. Uh, So there's there's a lot there that those two uh, technologies relate really, really carefully to one another. And I've been doing a lot of research on, on the concept of analog glitch. Um, and what it meant to really render those pixels. There's a couple other really fabulous artists doing a lot of similar work. Aaron M. Riley is a weaver who's doing um, large-scale weavings of screenshots um, from pornography predominantly and like taking fast mediums and presenting them in a slow medium. And so I was really, really influenced by that concept of like, how can I take this thing that is bombarding me um, and, and slow it down and kind of force people to look at it. Um, and I also just really like to, um, you know, figure out who you are and do it on purpose. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing all this and taking, you know, I was taking screenshots and like Snapchatting them to my friends back when Snapchat was a thing and being like, look at this in comparison to this Renaissance painting and look at this in comparison to this Da Vinci. Um, and I was like, maybe I should start doing this in a real way. Um, and and be who I am and be it do it on purpose. Um and so it kind of just formed pretty pretty organically from there. Um and then the bobbin lace pixel was just um again another way of rendering the pixelated image. And it's like a what I'm doing right now is like an analog bitmap. So I can create light pixels and dark pixels by the different ways that the threads cross and create these really, really subtle portraits. Um, Like I said, it always comes back to portraits for me. Um, I also just love to trick people. I love to invite people into my studio and have them be like, who is this beautiful woman? And I get to be like, oh, it's Jenny who got kicked off The Bachelor in week two. (laughs) That's great. That's great. And that that connection reminded me of this account that I follow. I, I'm not on Instagram currently. I'm taking a little bit of a respite because it's just, you know, it's, it's not communication. But uh, it's, what is that, uh, art but make it sports, that, that yeah. account? That, it makes me laugh so much because it's like, yo, that it is here. These these images are always around us. <laughs> um, so I got, I got two more real questions for you before I get to those rapid fire ones. Um, and this this one's kind of a two a two parter, if you will. Um, so I read that creativity is as important as as literacy, like in in terms of like education. Aside from your art practice and even you know being an uh, an educator in the field, like how has creativity like served you? Like I, I can say for me, just to pad here a little bit, it's helped me like think differently, helped me think more agile. Like I'm always in a spot of. I have to creatively problem solve. I have to creatively figure something out. So when I'm walking, you know, you see a crowd of people like, all right, I already see the angle. I can see it. It's like, it's like, right. There's a drawing in my head. Right. So how has creativity served you? Like in those sort of like unexpected ways? I think creativity has always made me a really effective problem solver. It's a real, um, I never really understand when people just say outright no, like there's just always a solution. There's always a way to make things happen. Um, And I think being fortunate enough to always have been in really creative spaces with really supportive and creative people, it has really helped me kind of find that 
you know, I come, I also come from a bit of an improv um, universe. So that like, yes, and concept of like, you say yes, and you add something to it. Like, you never negate in that kind of situation. Um, And I guess it also, you know, it, um, I, I came from a pretty, um, pretty high academic background. Um, And one of the things I like about creativity is that you can't memorize it. You can't, it's, there's not one right answer. Um, and there's no, there's no checkbox. Like you did it, you know, you did it right. There is no right. And I've always really, that has always been a really fun challenge for me to try and puzzle my head around as someone who was, who came from a background where there were always a right answer, um, that there, that there's this universe where there is none. Um, and I think that has always pushed me to, to make more interesting things and have more interesting conversations and make creative decisions. And I guess the second part of that is, um, you know, bringing it home, you know, lastly, if you will, since we're, we're in Baltimore, we have Micah here and, you know, you have that Micah connection. So what would you say in, in terms of like, you know, creativity in terms of like your, your, you know, scholastic background and how you approach your work, any of those, those areas, or any one that comes to mind, what is like the number one thing that you kind of got and retained out of Micah? Ooh, out of Micah? Um, I mean, out of any, out of, out of art school, I think it was the people. I, I say that to my students all the time. Um, that like, look around you. These, these are your connections. These are your people. This is your creative community. Uh, I think the opportunity to surround yourself with, with people who have that same desire for creative problem solving and that same desire to, to, to work their way around a problem um, sets you up for so, so much success. I still have connections with, um, with folks I met on my first day at Micah. Um, I, you know, the guy I sat next to um, when I didn't have anyone to sit next to at lunch is still one of my best friends. Like I, you know, those kinds of connections stay with you. Um, And I think that's true for my um, education in grad school as well. Like those, um, grad schools may be more trauma bonding, but that's all grad programs. Um, you know, we went through it together. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, that time to bond, not just with, um, with your peers, but with creative faculty, you know, now that I teach at Micah, um, I have the opportunity to work with people who were my teachers when I was a student there. And that kind of full circle moment is is so beautiful and so rare. And and to be able to see and appreciate them as an educator, as a peer, as a colleague, and to have them see, see the fruits of what they did. You know, I see it in such small ways because I'm still new on my educational journey. But like when I see a student who I taught I'll give a specific example that I had a student who taught a really, who made a really, really beautiful um, drawing for her final project. And it was a beautiful perspective scene of a city. And I taught her perspective. And I was like, I, like, I feel such a part of this, like six months, you know, not even that long, three months ago when we were learning 1.2.3 point perspective and like, drawn on Google Maps and Google Earth and like figuring all this stuff out. And now you made this thing. And I was a part of that. And, you know, I hope that the teachers who get to work with me have those same little quiet moments where they're like, and I taught Sasha that thing. And now here we are leading a group through the BMA. Um, And, you know, I think that kind of 
that kind of connection and that kind of journey is is so beautiful and so rare and i'm so lucky to get to be a part of it that's wonderful it's great thank you thank you for sharing and i think it's um i think we can move into the the rapid fire portion of the pod sure. um all right okay so there are three real ones and one's a little self-serving but i think it's i think it's worth using uh so here's the first one do you have a motto um (laughs) do i have a motto um i think (laughs) every year for new year's i say my new year's resolution is a little more hot a little less mess I, I like that. <laughs> I don't know if I should put that on the air, but that's true. That's 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 great. That's great. Uh, all right, I, I'm 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 shifting this one a little bit. Uh, in the scene, the last three years, what are three really significant, in your opinion, significant uh, pop culture things? It could be a pop culture. It could be a reality TV show. It could be a movie. It can be an assault that happened during the Oscars last year. I don't know. Uh, what comes to mind for you? <laughs> Do you mean significant for me and my work or significant in the world at large? In the world at large, that really just pops for you. Um, well, I mean, we could go, we could go serious. We could go light. We could go. I feel like I, oh, this is as someone who makes pop culture work, this is such an impossible question for me. I know. I know. I I tried to frame it in a small concentrated period of time. Give me the time period one more time. From 2020 to now. From 2020 to now. Um, um, I mean, because I've done so much extensive research on The Bachelor, I got to talk about the (laughs) Bachelor quarantine seasons were insane and like were the only things making television in 2020. And that was a wild ride to watch a bunch of people be quarantined in a hotel. Um, And I got to say that part. Um, That's really funny. (laughs) True. Um, Culture moments. Oh, my God. I mean, um, I mean, last night we had our first um, Asian winner of an Oscar. That was huge. That feels like a giant best actress winner. Um, That feels like a huge pop culture moment. I feel like we've had such wonderful historic pop culture moments for diversity and inclusion that like I can't even conceive of. Um, I mean, and just because you mentioned it, the slap, I think, is a huge one. I think it became a big part of, um, you know, also as someone who researches pop culture and has conversations with students, that kind of conversation around, like, um, the privilege in that moment, the um, the anger in that moment, are, and I think it tapped into some cultural anger um, that we have as a, as a like, People who, that's a, that's a heavy one. That's got a lot. And I think the ripples of that will be um, very far reaching. Absolutely. Um, And then how many did you want? Was that three? That was three. Yeah. That was all I wanted. All I wanted was three. Oh, I feel like I'm going to end this call and think of like a thousand more that were, um, because all I'm thinking about right now are reality TV and The Bachelor. I mean, Love is Blind happened since 2020. That's insane. Um, uh, you know, oh, at Squid Game as a concept for a reality TV universe, what, go, watching Squid Game and then turning around and watching an episode of Survivor in the pandemic. That was an insane juxtaposition. 
Um, Because what is that? We're doing that all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could go on forever. No, those are good. Those are good. Uh, this this is the last sort of like real sort of real uh, rapid fire question. Uh, like, well, let's say you're traveling, right? And once you get settled, you know, bags are away. You've checked in, whatever the thing is, right? What is the first place or the first thing that you do when you're like, all right, now I have time to explore or what have you when you're in a new place? Um. Honestly, I figure out the um, public transit system. I love public transit in new cities. I feel like it's the best way to get to know a place and to like orient yourself and to really see a city. Like I want to get on a bus. Um, I don't know if that's the most glamorous answer, but like I want to walk somewhere. I want to get on a bus somewhere and I want to see see where I can go. I, I like that answer. Um, I'm looking for the coffee and uh, I'm looking for the place to put my sunglasses on so I won't be bothered. No autographs, please. No autographs, please. Because uh, everyone knows Rob Lee. Um, with that, um, who th- this is the one that's kind of self-serving, but I think it's worth worth putting out there. It's almost a, a plug before the plug. Um, who would you like to hear interviewed on this podcast? Like who comes to mind? Ooh. Um, well, are we staying in Baltimore? I know you've been expanding out to Philly. Where are we? Any, any and everywhere. It's any a, and everywhere? The, world, the world is getting smaller by the moment. Um, well, I'll, I'll name drop some friends of mine who I think have a lot of really interesting stuff to say about themselves and their work. And, um, I, I have a couple, my, two of my, three of my really wonderful friends from grad school. I'll name them. Um, I have a regular uh, FaceTime chat with my friends Chelsea Lee and Magdalene Dykstra, who are fabulous, fabulous contemporary artists. Chelsea's making work um, about uh, pop culture in like uh, from the perspective of obsession, which is pretty cool. She does a ton of work about um, Kim Kardashian, Rob Lowe, um, Anderson Cooper, um, lots of lots of really interesting kind of pop culture diversions there. And I think she's got a lot of really, really interesting stuff to say about it. Um, Magdalene is making a bunch of really, really interesting work about connection. And um, like she makes these really, really beautiful unfired clay structures. And she's been traveling all over the country. Um, she's from Canada. She traveled all over the US too to, um, to show them. Um, and then my friend William Lennard um, makes really, really beautiful uh, concrete giant sculptures um, and writes poems associated with them. They're um, they're located in Richmond. Um, and I have a special place in my heart for all of their concrete work because I helped them install a bunch of them. And our goals were always just not to have a Richard Sarah moment and have nothing fall and collapse on anybody. Um, And we made it, but like two tons of concrete. Um, That was a very scary, scary installation, Um, but such incredible work to see up in the space. That's great. And um, thank you. Thank you. I'm taking notes. So this is the last part. Here's the shameless plug portion, as you know, but I'm going to say it very corny because I enjoy being corny. Can you lace us with your uh, shameless plugs? Uh, sure. Um, my name is Sasha Baskin. I'm Sash Bask, just about everywhere. Um, the first parts of my name. Um, I'm on Instagram as Sash Bask, and my students have talked me into trying to be on TikTok because um, they told me that there's lace on TikTok that I should look at. And so I've posted like three videos. I'm scared of it, but I'm doing it. Um, every week they teach me a new piece of Gen Z slang and I'm further terrified. 
Um, but I'm, I'm doing it. Uh, and I tell them all the time, like, I was not cool at 19, guys. I will not be cool <laughs> now. Um, but uh, um, so, yeah, that's where that's where you can find me. I teach at um, Micah and Johns Hopkins, and you can find me there as well. SashaBaskin.com. That's my other one. There you go. And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Sasha Baskin for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there is art and culture in and around your neck of the woods. You've just got to look for it. Oh,